There we go. So, yeah, Judges 7 and 8, it's hard to know how long, if I'll be done really fast, or, but we'll take as long as it takes. Uh, so, if you remember a little bit, just to uh, get us back to where we were with Gideon, uh, remember he's already had a, a visit from the angel of the Lord, uh, who found him uh, down in the wine press, um, and calls him valiant man of God, valiant warrior, uh, tells him that God will be with him, and there's back and forth there that goes on. And then the uh, angel of the Lord miraculously consumes a food offering, so begins to show him who he really is. And then there's the whole fleece thing of fleece wet, grass dry, then, oh, maybe that was not really proof, so can you switch it? And God uh, patiently does all that. So he's already had all this, and, and I will say, as we go through what Gideon does, I do think we should have some sympathy for him that God really did need to make him a man of rock-solid faith uh, to be able to do what he does. All right, so chapter 7, um, and you've got on your sheet, God's power is perfected in weakness. He uses a little to accomplish much. And we got into that even a little bit last week. Um, and that's where it says, uh, you know, you've got Gideon. And, and by the way, there was about 32,000 soldiers to start with. As you follow the narrative, you can, you'll find that. And the Midianites had 135,000. So they already had this huge disadvantage in numbers. Uh, but even so, um, verse 2, the Lord says to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful saying, my own power has delivered me. So God knows their hearts, and I guess he knows our hearts too in, in similar situations where it would be impressive if 32,000 beats 135,000, but it might be just believable enough that they could convince themselves that we're just that good. We're just really good soldiers. So God wants to make it so that that would be pretty ridiculous. So he says he's got to uh, decrease them. And that second uh, line on your sheet, lest we boast that it was really our own power. And that um, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So again, we've, we've talked about that passage a few times, but I just think it's always a good one. Even if you have gifts that you're, you really are good at, it doesn't mean you have to say, oh no, I'm terrible at that, because you might not be. You might be very good. But even so, it's not room for boasting. It's room for thankfulness that God has uh, given you that gift. All right, so what other examples can you think of from Scripture where God kind of seems to purposely do a lot with a little to kind of make it obvious that it's him that's doing it? Jonathan is on the barrel asking God's guidance and then going pretty much to trounce the Philistines. Going what? To pretty much trounce the Philistines. Trounce the Philistines, okay, good. That's a good one. Think of any others? Maybe the 5,000. Okay. All right. And the 4,000. We had that too. In fact, that's interesting. Maybe I'm a numbers person, but he feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, and there's 12 baskets left over. Uh, he feeds 4,000 with seven loaves and a few fish, and there are seven baskets left over. It's just interesting when that it's almost there's more left over when you're feeding more people because that's how God wanted to do it. 
What's that there? Maybe so, yeah. All right. Uh, any others come to mind? So David and Goliath. You know, you've got this little shepherd guy with his stone, five smooth stones. All right. The widow and the royal were prophecies. You know, keep filling it up and good. Yep. Also, time when when Elijah came to stay with the widows and make me a little cake, and said, "Oh, just have enough for me to go ahead and right." First, and then she has enough for years. Yep. First, trust me, and then you'll get it. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, kind of showing there is actually a lot here that you just didn't see. Okay. Yep. What about when uh, Moses, they were complaining about eating manna and they wanted meat and fish out of Egypt and then God gave them enough meat to choke up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that wasn't a real sweet story, but yes, that was. Yeah. He grabbed up what seemed like a random pig and then made a great nation out of him. Who are we talking about? Oh, Abraham. Okay, good. Randy. The story of the apostles. Yeah. Yep. Good. Yeah, you could probably probably it's harder to think of the reverse where God takes the obvious choice that everybody expected. It's it's almost always not. Um, so. That's what he's going to do here uh, big time. So first, um, it says in verse 3, Therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. <clears throat> so that actually was a thing from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 20, verse 3. Uh, it says that the uh, head of the army shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching... Well, first, first this is God. Hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. So, so first God speaks and says, however many you've got... Uh, I'm one of you, and so it's going to be enough, and I'm going with you. But then verse 8, Then the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? So he's just said, don't be, but uh, let him depart and return to his house so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. So you've got, just like you can learn anger from an angry man, uh, he doesn't want this fearfulness uh, and timidity to spread to the other uh, soldiers, and so they're allowed to go back. So he, he puts that out there, and <laughs> again, I don't know what, what Gideon, or, uh, Gideon was expecting, but I doubt he thought two-thirds of the army or more was going to walk away. I, was, I would be thinking, you know, you might get a little band of people who are going to walk away. But two-thirds of his army went. And um, so they had to kind of deal with that. They're down to 10,000 at this point. You do just kind of think if you're, you're going home to your wife, you've, you've gone off to fight. And you know, it's kind of, sweetie, you're, you're home early. <laughs> yeah, there was a special deal we had with this special group of us. So I would think it would have been a little bit embarrassing. But at any rate, so two-thirds of the army is gone. Um, and then verse 4, um, Then the Lord said to Gideon, you know, far from going, oh my, we didn't think this many people were going to leave. The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore, it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But every one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. 
So now you've got the lappers and the kneelers. And you know, if you look at old sermons, it's just fascinating what they make of the lappers and the kneelers. And they, you know, like, well, the ones that bring the water up, it's, it's because they're really good at, they're keeping an eye out while they're drinking, and so they're the better soldiers. And I think that's not the point at all. It's, the whole point is he's using something to get it down to a really small number. And we're going to see they don't even fight initially. Um, so it's, it's not like we got to have 300 crack troops and, you know, or, or, you know, pastors who say, you know, you guys who went to the early service, you're our 300 crack troops. And that, that just isn't the point. Um, the point is God is going to show his own power. Um, so on your sheet there, we've already got 135,000 uh, against 10,000, but still that was too many. Uh, the point isn't that these men had some special qualities. It was rather a way to whittle the army down to 300 to defeat 135,000 to show the power of God. And that, I just got a lesson in exegesis. Just, and, and again, the, one of the people who kind of picks on all these different ways that people have used this is Alistair Begg, and he's the one that I often quote is where he says, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. That, you know, don't, don't get off into these weird tangents of here's what this uh, really means about the lappers and the kneelers. All right. So now you've got uh, verse 8. The 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So, and it's interesting, too, to think about the 300. You know, probably some of them might have wished they drank in a different way. Um, but there they were, the 300. And they didn't even have the benefit of what God gave to Gideon, where, and he's going to give him another sign as well. Uh, but the 300 just had to trust God and his leader uh, and move ahead. Yeah. Right. I mean, this doesn't make sense. Exactly. Right. And it gets worse because <laughs> they're going to have a torch, a jar, and a trumpet. So, all right. So, verse 9. Now, the same night it came about, the Lord said to him, Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. So, we don't know whether, you know, that's a, a dream, a vision, how uh, the angel of God coming back, but one way or the other, God says this to him, so once again makes him a promise. And then, again, I am just struck by God's kindness. Verse 10, But if you are afraid to go down, go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say. And afterward, your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Pura, his servant. So you can see, yes, he was afraid uh, because he said, if. Uh, so he went with Pura, his servant, down to the outpost of the army that was in the camp. And so on your sheet there, God's gracious provision for Gideon's persistent fear. I do think if you picture this and... Uh, it's hard to be hard on Gideon. Uh, I think we should be amazed at God's patience, but at the same time, I don't think we should, uh, like, oh, I wouldn't have been afraid. I'd have, I'd have just walked right in there. Um, and the, the passage, it kind of came to mind with how God dealt with him. Um, Psalm 103, 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And that's just a, a pretty sweet thing to know as we walk through life. And uh, it certainly uh, showed in the way he dealt with Gideon. 
And then it says in, uh, in verse 12, Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures or videos of locust infestations, but, I mean, it just looks like the land is alive with moving bugs. And so you've got that going on with, with these uh, enemies. And their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So just, uh, I've got there, an intimidating prospect. You can see why God is trying to harden him and strengthen him and give him courage. Isaiah 41.10 is, uh, I will just say, that's, so that's my favorite verse that I ponder when I'm in an intimidating place. And mine are not where there's like 135,000 people that are about to kill me. With me, it's walking onto an airplane that I have to stay on for the next 10 hours or whatever the flight is. I don't like to be in closed spaces that I can't walk out of. And this literally is the verse that I run through my head. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. For I am your God, I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I actually wrote that for one of my patients on a prescription slip Friday because they were going on a similar trip. So um, I do think uh, that is what God was teaching Gideon. All right, so then they go down. He goes down with Pura, and he listens to this dream, uh, basically a, a loaf of barley bread, which was kind of a, a very rough, kind of the lowest quality bread, uh, rolls into the camp in this dream and knocks over the tent uh, of the Midianites, in fact, flips it upside down, and he tells this, this Midianite tells it to his buddy, who says, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash. A man of Israel, God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. So when Gideon gets to hear that, and it says, When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. So again, I, I think as, as the deliverers go on, they tend to kind of get worse in Judges. Gideon, he wasn't a perfect man, but he did have some good, uh, good responses at times, and uh, to bow and worship certainly was a good one. And then he returns to the camp of Israel and says, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into our hands. So on your sheet there, it's got Gideon's response of worship and obedient leadership. So worship is good, but then it, it, he had stuff to do. He need to, needed to walk that out. Um, and then the next one I've got is a most unlikely battle plan. Uh, verse 16, and this is kind of, you know, to what Greg was saying a minute ago. He divided the 300 men into three companies and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, for the Lord and for Gideon. And again, we just kind of read this from the safety of our world. Uh, you imagine this, this 135,000 swordsmen and camels and this big army down there, and you've got your little band of 300, and, you know, he's doing however he does it, you know, Samuel, will you pass out the torches and, and everybody make sure you have a jar? And I mean, you, you've got to think in normal circumstances, you'd be going, this is nuts. I mean, we are going to blow the trumpets and then they're going to snuff us out in about 10 minutes. Yeah, we're not going to sneak up on them. Yeah. We're not no. going to sneak up on them. We're going to say, hey, we're here. Right. We're going to surround them. So, and Gideon has at least been convinced. And again, it amazes me that the 300, however God was working, he worked that out, but uh, that they would trust uh, God's leader this way. All right. And then, um, so this unlikely battle plan. 
And then a miraculous victory by the hand of God is uh, verses 21 and 22. Each stood in his place around the camp. And all, and so they did this. They broke the jars. The, they had the um, torches go up. They blew the trumpets. Uh, it says, all the army ran, crying out as they fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Bethshita toward Zerira and as far as the edge of Abel Mahola by Tabith. And that was about 16 miles kind of going southeast, uh, basically running back toward home and toward the Jordan River where they had to go over. And, uh, and they were chased. But, so, you know, clearly the 300, without even having weapons in their hands, were not going to bring anything about uh, without God making it happen. So, clearly just a flat-out uh, miracle of God being worked. So then they call in reinforcements as they're chasing. Uh, it says the men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Bethbara and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they took the waters as far as Bethbara and the Jordan. So they called them down to help. They captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed them. Uh, quite grim. They brought the heads of them to Gideon from across the Jordan. And then the men of Ephraim said to uh, Gideon, you would think they would just be celebrating at this point, but what is this thing you have done to us, not calling us when you went to fight against Midian? And they contended with him vigorously. So here they've had this great victory, but they didn't like that they weren't called earlier. They weren't brought in right at the beginning. Uh, and Gideon really shows um, on your sheet there godly wisdom. You could really, and of course later his response to some people is not going to be quite so gentle. But at least this time he... Uh, just answers wisely. He says, what have I done in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God has given the leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, into your hands. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? And then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. Uh, so you're, you're familiar with the passages, a gentle Answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger, Proverbs 15.1. And then the other one that, that comes to mind is um, wisdom from above, James 3. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. And that's kind of what Ephraim was spouting. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable. And the idea of that word is willing to yield. Full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So... At least in this circumstance, Gideon does that. You've got this stirring up of why didn't you do it this way uh, when in fact God had told him how he was supposed to do it and he'd done it that way. Uh, it would have been very easy to lash back out, but he spoke graciously like, you know, you guys did way more than me. I just did this little thing. You guys did this. That was great. And they, um, their anger subsided. So then... Uh, Verse uh, 4 of chapter 8. Then Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over. And then this uh, very colorful phrase, weary yet pursuing. So they were by then pretty exhausted, but they weren't giving up. And on your sheet there, when in God's providence, 
we are weary, may we yet pursue his purposes. So just a, a pretty good picture of servants of the Lord. I often think our pastor, Chris, is often weary yet pursuing and, and not even complaining of being weary, but watching the amount of, that he accomplishes, um, he's a good example of that. So, And we want that to be not where we get weary of serving the Lord, but get weary in serving the Lord and yet find strength and press on. And, you know, there are other passages that talk of us getting, receiving even in our sleep and rest, and that has its place. So it's not that we're supposed to try to run ourselves ragged, but there will be times uh, in our life for sure, uh, maybe daily. I think of moms who are just trying to be good moms uh, are often weary yet pursuing, trying to just serve the Lord and be good and uh, gracious teachers of their kids and, and uh, many different places were put in service. And so weary yet pursuing is, is just a, a good phrase to keep in mind. Um, and then the next line I've got there, the serious sin of not refreshing those who are laboring for the Lord. So those, um, starting with verse 5, he comes to these two different cities. And they, they, these are Israelites, by the way. These are not, you know, some other clan outside of that that just wouldn't be interested in helping. They should have been absolutely interested in helping uh, because these Midianites often would have gone right past these places. And so you've got, um, and, and whether they, you know, it doesn't say, so we can't say absolutely, but a lot of uh, those looking at this, and it does make some sense to me, would say, you know, they were fearful that, okay, we just still saw, I think it was 15,000 men went past here, the Midianites, and you're 300, because this is still not making any sense numbers-wise. So, you know, they may very well have thought, we think they're going to snuff you out. You don't have them in your hands yet, um, because um, Gideon has asked the leaders uh, for bread, He said, please give loaves of bread to the people who are following me, for they are weary, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth say, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hands, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon says, he does not give a gentle answer here. He says, all right, when the Lord has given them into my hand, I will thrash your bodies with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And pretty much the same thing happens in Penuel, uh, but there, there's this huge tower that was uh, fortified, and he said, I'm going to knock that down when I come back uh, because you haven't helped. So, yeah, whether that was fear of the Midianites, that if we help you, they're going to hear about it and they're going to crush us, and they're way bigger than you are, but either way, they did not um, help Gideon. So then it says, um, verse 11, Gideon went up by the way of those who lived in the tents on the east of Noba and Jogbeha and attacked the camp when the camp was unsuspecting. So he uses a surprise attack. I mean, again, you still have, you know, surprise attack or not, 300 is not going to beat 15,000 unless something unusual happens. And that does seem to be, once again, where they're turned into a panic um, and attacking each other. And so uh, he wins that battle. Um, 2 Timothy 1.16 says, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Uh, and if you look in Philippians, it talks about them meeting the needs of Paul or, or you know, verses that talk about if you even give a cup of cold water to someone in my name, that, they'll, that will be rewarded. And there, there are just lots of places that talk about helping those who are serving the Lord. And 
you'll have to read it yourself and see what you think. I'll tell you what I think about this. There are, there are those who read this passage and see what Gideon does, because he does, he comes back, and so he comes to the first one, and he takes these thorns and briars, and apparently the way that, the phrase he uses when he says he's just going to use the thorns of the wilderness, they had a way of uh, separating some of their crops where they would have this heavy weight on top of these spikes and just run it over it repeatedly and it would separate it out. And so the thought is that's what they did to these men, these leaders. Um, and you get the impression, at least with the first group, that uh, they certainly were, were very badly injured, but they wouldn't, uh, apparently weren't killed. So some go, well, you know, Gideon has just gone bad here. He's... Um, He's become very, you know, like even saying for, for the sword of the Lord and, and of Gideon that that was wrong uh, and that here he's becoming very vengeful. Um, but then others, uh, Spurgeon and many others have said that this is wartime. This is not when things are just going to be able to be all gentle and nice. And, and it really is traitors who have not backed up a, a God-ordained war, and so they feel more like Gideon wasn't way out of line, maybe not out of line at all. He was, he was administering a severe discipline on men who, and really, if, if the 300 had just, if God hadn't sustained them and they had just collapsed, you would have had this, this possible huge victory fail, and you would have had Midian able to continue to fight and kill and, and uh, overrun Israel. So I, I tend more toward that. I, you'll have to see what you think, but I tend to think he was a, he was a leader, uh, not claiming that he was perfect. I'm sure there was a mix of... Uh, probably motives, but I don't think that was a clearly, oh, that was just wrong, that was just all him. I tend to think, I mean, God definitely ordained some, some hard things, especially in the midst of war um, in those times. Anybody want to comment on that at all? Okay, well, you, can, you can ponder that a little bit. Um, yeah, and just kind of quickly the way he did it so in Succoth he captured a youth questioned him and the youth wrote down for him the princes of Succoth and its elders 77 men so that's really who he goes after or is the leadership not just everybody in the town um, he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars and he disciplined the men of Succoth with them and then it says he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't say for sure. I mean, does that mean every single man in the city? I tend to think that was the leadership again. Um, that's who he seemed to hold responsible. Um, so now he's got these uh, Zeba and Zalmuna um, that he is gonna deal with. And they were, again, two more leaders of Midian. And he says to them, um, they, had, they had killed a bunch of people. And so Gideon questions them, and he says, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And they said, they were like you. Each one, I, I would think this is a, just not a good thing to say. Uh, they were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. And I think he's saying literally, those were my brothers uh, by blood. Um, As the Lord lives, if only you had let them live, I would not kill you. And then he says to his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. And then the, the two Zs say, rise up yourself and fall on us, for as a man so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed them and took the crescent ornaments which were on their camels' necks. 
So they've, they've completely conquered um, the Midianites. And then verse 22, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, and, and I think this often happens when there's a great, uh, I think of our, our country, somebody like an Eisenhower who's had a great military or uh, Ulysses Grant, um, that often they want them to uh, go ahead and uh, rule over them. So it said, rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. And we, we never want to go too far with arguments from silence. Uh, we're not told everything that gets said. But I will say it would have been really good. I've, I've got there the mixed response of Gideon to the victory God gave. And the first one, credit to God for the deliverance not verbalized. So if he said it, it's not recorded. And, and that's... And I think regardless, those are always good um, lessons to us that sometimes somebody says something that they did or, and just, you know, maybe you don't have to say it every single time, I suppose, but um, there are a lot of times where that's just a really good time to say, like most of the time if, uh, um, well, I don't want to just talk about Chris, but he, if you say that that was a powerful sermon or something like that, he'll almost always say something like, the Lord is good, the Lord is gracious. And I, do, I do think whether we always say it just like that, keeping in mind that, again, anything we have that's good is from him and trying to give him glory when we can. Sometimes you have to be creative to think about it, so it doesn't sound like you're just uh, beating somebody over the head with it, but... I think this, this would have been a really good time for him to say, no, I didn't deliver. There was 300 of us with trumpets and jars and torches. God delivered you. Um, but he does at least say, um, verse 23, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. So he did say that. That was... Uh, that was good, points them to God as their proper or appropriate ruler. All right, so again, we're going to see it's kind of a mixed response. There's some good things that Gideon does and then maybe some not so good. Uh, 24 to 27. Um, Gideon says to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they said, we will surely give them. So they spread out a garment. Everyone threw the earrings there from his spoil. Uh, I didn't figure out what it was in a, an American system, but the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Uh, it was certainly substantial and besides a number of other things. And then Gideon makes it into an ephod. Anybody know what that is? probably got in your study Bibles. What is it? What's that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. With 12 precious stones for the um, uh, tribes of Israel. And, and again, we just have to live with the fact there's some of these things that, that good men uh, and women argue back and forth a little bit. So some of them think, yeah, it was literally that's what it was here, uh, or you know that maybe the name had been broadened out to other uh, religious or worship type ornaments. Uh, whatever it was, it was set up um, in Gideon's hometown, and it became, as it says in verse 27, a snare to Gideon and his household. Um, and before that, it, it, yeah, it says in his city of Ophrah, all Israel played harlot with it there. So it, it became this idol. It became something that they thought of as something you worship uh, in the place of God. And so, again, you've got a, at least an unwise, whether Gideon really intended that, tend to think not, but either way, it was not a wise thing. Um, 
I guess a couple more blanks you've got there, multiplies treasure and makes what becomes an idol. Uh, Galatians 5, 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Kind of feel that way about Gideon as this goes along. He's running well and then uh, not as good. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Um, Nevertheless, the land is given rest. Verse 28, Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel and they did not lift up their heads anymore. And the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So again, it, it does seem to be a mix because it seems like he still, God honors him and there's still this influence that he has as long as he's uh, alive. And your last blank there, but he multiplies wives. Uh, 29 to 31, uh, Jeroboam, which is the other name for Gideon, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. And his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. So and he's mentioned for a reason that in the next chapter we're going to see things don't go well for these 70 uh, offspring and Abimelech is a big part of that. And even though he's not a king, he is a ruler of his people. So Deuteronomy 17, I would say, applies. Verse 14, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it and you say, I will set a king over me. And that's always interesting to me too, even though God didn't specifically want them to have a king, he knows uh, and ordains, and however that works, uh, that they will. So even back in Deuteronomy, uh, he says, um, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. That's what Israel will say. And it says, you shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. And then down in verse 17 it says, He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. So Gideon has is, is kind of gotten pulled in. I'm sure it'd be easy to say, well, I mean, I led this thing. I, I did all this um, fighting and leading and putting myself at risk. Uh, surely I should be rewarded. Uh, but it does seem like his heart is being drawn after these things. But it says, uh, Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father, Joash, in Ophrah of the Abia's rights. Um, and yeah, you would hope that there'd be at least a little carryover, but it says, then it came about as soon as Gideon was dead that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Bareth their God. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side nor did they show kindness to the household of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in accord with all the good that he had done to Israel. So they really became thankless to both, both to God uh, and to one who had led them well. It's, it's kind of not surprising because the ethic, whatever it was, hmm. was already right. leading them that way. Right, yeah. Yeah, they, they had already, even while he's alive, there's certainly signs of, of trouble in the future. Um, I've got on the bottom of your sheet, in these narratives and in our own lives we long for, and they all lived happily ever after. Uh, and I do think we want to remember, in the end, God wins, and we want to be with him. One day it will be so for us as God's children, but not yet. So we were... Um, uh, Margaret and I were at a memorial service yesterday uh, in Middle Tennessee, and it was a family that we know really well. And our oldest daughter, Hannah, had gotten married on their farm uh, about a year ago. And 
um, that, and, and there had been a previous wedding that we went to, which was, I mean, they were both super sweet. Oldest daughter, that was incredibly sweet, but also this other one was um, a girl they had adopted. So uh, just kind of quickly with the story, my second oldest daughter, Gretchen, had gone on a mission trip with me to Guatemala when she was 12. And we stopped in at an orphanage, which was tied into this ministry. And we were there for a bit. So when Margaret, or sorry, when Gretchen turned 17, she says, hey, um, I'd like to go spend the summer at that orphanage. And, and I like Crystal Tuggle, this family in Little Tennessee, and they were good friends um, to go with me. And she's 17 too. And I'm thinking, okay, so these two blonde uh, American girls are going to go in the middle of Guatemala. It's one thing when they're, you know, with dad and, and we're passing through and so on versus, no, they're just going to be there. And there was, uh, that was not cell phone time. So there was none of that. So there's none of this communication. Well, we had always had as a family, and I'm not saying it's the only right way to do it, but we thought, well, if you're going to have adventures and take a risk, we want them to be good, not just to do it. And so I thought, this is a good adventure. This is, uh, but still wanted to, to do due diligence. So one of my partners was much more closely tied in with this orphanage. I said, okay, you've got a daughter about Gretchen's age. Would you let her go and be there the whole summer? And uh, to his credit, he didn't answer that quickly. He thought it through. He said, well, you know, there's a, there's a really good director there, and there's a... Uh, another couple that we had met that sort of oversees it. So yeah, I, I think it would be okay. So we said yes. And I think I've, I've told a part of this story where, uh, um, th so there was a point where they, so they went and they're there. And later my daughter said to me, I was really, when she was like in her twenties, I was really surprised you let me do that. Kind of with that tone. And I said, sounds like I shouldn't have. And she said, <laughs> She said, well, it just as it turned out, the director was not a good person and was um, having relations with the boys in the orphanage. It was not a good situation. Uh, but at least she had a friend and they, you know, God kept them safe. She said when we would go to the village to get supplies, that was pretty sketchy. And she's a daughter who is not easily intimidated. So, uh, but they did okay. And they met these three siblings and they um, uh, it got very close with them. And they noticed people would come in and want to adopt one of them, but not all, never all three. And they said, ah, you know, and the orphanage at least said, no, yeah, it's all three or, or none. And so uh, <laughs> Gretchen, in her usual logical way, said, well, we have, to her friend Crystal, we have seven kids already and you only have four and if we adopt them then we're going to have ten and you're only going to have four but if you adopt them we'll both have seven that'll be perfect so uh, Crystal listened to her and asked her dad and they um, thankfully adopted these uh, all three and so we have known them over the years and we watched one of them get married uh, a year ago something like that maybe more um, and it was just very sweet to just be sitting there watching uh, dad walk this young lady down the aisle and to just think, you know, so many times things don't always go how we would like them to. They don't always live happily ever after. And I remember thinking, well, I don't know what happens next. There may be all sorts of heartache uh, in the future, but this is pretty sweet. And you want to just be thankful to God in the moments when, when you see that uh, and how he worked in all the different circumstances that this guy would have ever even known this young lady to adopt her. Um, and I wrote them a little note and I, I wasn't meaning to be the least bit prophetic, but I, I, I did say, you know, I never know what'll happen in the future. There may be lots of heartache, but um, what a sweet thing. And. Um, so sadly, the memorial service was for their oldest son, who was 40 and had um, passed away at the farm. Um, he'd 
was, uh, had gotten into drinking a lot. So he kind of wrecked his health, but as you can imagine, it was quite a heartache. And we think he was a believer, but it's one of those things where that's not how any of us wants to go out, uh, where the last notes played in our life is, is dark. And so uh, I have to say, I, I think of that when we look at biblical characters. I think of that when we see people that we know. And when we think of ourselves, that whole thing of running the race, finishing well, uh, it's not just a phrase. It's what we want. And so... Uh, pursuing God in a way that uh, we don't start to coast, where we don't start to just not uh, press in and spend time with him and, and spend time with the people of God. Uh, it just was striking me and looking at, at Gideon and some of the good and the bad, and thankfully there was a, a, a fair bit of good uh, but, but all of these characters, and it says God has written these down for our instruction. And so we want to just be able to take them and kind of put them into real life perspective. Um, yeah, it was an incredibly um, emotional but really sweet memorial service, nevertheless, to see a family that had loved this young man well and didn't have regrets about that piece of it. Uh, that they had uh, loved him and helped him. He'd, he had gone off to Afghanistan and did not come back the same. Um, just uh, some, some difficult things there that uh, he was having a hard time digesting. But um, at any rate, you've got you know, kind of both, both pieces. God is there and, and does things that, make, that are just so sweet to see, and then there are harder things, but they both do... Uh, hopefully press us towards him. Any other thoughts, questions, statements? Just wanted to share that a little bit. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that your hand is on every part of our life, that the people that we know and love, uh, we can see you working in them. Uh, Lord, sometimes things that are just joyful and delightful and sometimes things that are very hard and dark. And uh, we are thankful that you don't waste any of that, that you work in ways uh, often that we can't see uh, and sometimes that we can. Lord, we thank you that you help us, that you instruct us. We do thank you that as your children, uh, Lord, we are always thankful that you hold us much more than we hold you. Uh, but we do pray that you would help us to seek to be near you uh, that you could be near to us. Uh, Lord, thank you for your grace, your patience, your gentleness, that you love us as a father. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.